Morning Twitter. I am Stephanie McNeil. I'm joined by the lovely and talented Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Okay, Alex, I would be remiss if I did not start off this lovely Tuesday by wishing you a very happy National Cheeseburger Day. Happy National Cheeseburger well, Day, thank Alex. Thank you very much. I am a fan of cheeseburgers. Who doesn't love a cheeseburger? Some people don't love cheeseburgers. I wouldn't say I don't like it. I don't eat red meat, so I'm kind of ambivalent, but you know, whatever, cheeseburgers, if you wanna eat them, go right ahead. Well, if you are like me and you love a cheeseburger, we gotta give a special shout out to our sponsor, Wendy's, for making it possible for the people to get their cheeseburgers. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Wendy's. Okay, Alex, so what do you think about this social media trend of national whatever day? It seems like every single day there's a new national blah, blah, blah day. Today is National Cheeseburger Day. Are you into it or not? Well, I think we gotta find our joy where we can in this moment. So if the people wanna celebrate whatever national day is for them, if it's a food, if it's a hobby, just, just go find your joy, have your day. But I will play devil's advocate. If every day is special, is any day special? Well, Steph, uh, you and I are cat fans, and so oh, true. I would you say, got me there. so here's, here's the thing, I know maybe uh, you don't think that every day is special, but if you had a national cat day, would that make you excited? Only if it was a national Persian cat day. Only follow, per Persian follow my cats cat on only. Instagram, at Buffy the Persian. Well, you know, uh, you may not be a fan of uh, all of the national days. Uh, I want people to celebrate, but Twitter, we wanna hear from you. Do you like all of these social media holidays? Or are they annoying? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm uh, But Stephanie, there was some other news this morning. Uh, some other yeah, news. there really there was some other news, Alex. Okay, you ready to talk about it? Yeah, the Captain Marvel trailer is out. Oh, um, that's not actually what I was thinking. You know, Brie Larson, superhero, badass. Um, uh, no, actually, I was thinking about something else. It's kind of all over Twitter right now. No, uh, no, uh, I don't know if you've no. like opened this website, Twitter.com. No, uh, we're not, we're not we're not talking about the the toad. We're not doing this, Stephanie. What? Uh, come on! I am not talking about the damn toad. Well, you guys, I'm just a pretty face. She's the boss, so I guess whatever. We'll talk about Captain Marvel. Well, moving along, from National Cheeseburger Day to a celebration of a different sort, the most diverse, culturally sensitive, and feminist Emmy Awards of all time happened last night. Just kidding. BuzzFeed News Entertainment reporter Sylvia Obell tweeted, they really started this show bragging about it being the most diverse ever, only to give the first seven awards to white people. And guess what? None of the awards went to Sandra Oh. Jessica Alexander tweeted, diversity, diversity, look, diversity. And the winners are Henry Winkler, Bill Hader, and the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Hmm. Justice for Sandra Oh. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch Killing Eve. Supposedly it's fantastic. I know a lot of people, yourself included, were very disappointed that she did not win last night. Um, but, you know, did you watch the awards? So I didn't really watch the awards. I paid uh, a little bit of attention on Twitter to the red carpet and stuff. Um, I do want to say, if you haven't watched Killing Eve, I love the show. Sandra Oh plays this really nuanced character chasing down a serial killer across Europe. I love that there are two women leading the show. I love that a woman is behind the show. So if you haven't watched it, this is a great excuse to do that. Um, but it was really lovely to see Sandra Oh on the red carpet uh, with her parents in tow. And there were also a couple of other political statements on the red carpet. Uh, Jennifer Lewis was there. 
there in a Nike tracksuit, um, looking the chicest I have seen anyone ever wearing a tracksuit, but also to show her, her support for Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Evan Rachel Wood even brought Amanda Wynn along, who is uh, a leader in the Me Too movement. So I thought it was really cool that people were, you know, wearing uh, fabulous outfits and also their values on the red carpet. It's been very interesting, especially in the midst of this Me Too movement. But even before, even before the Me Too movement, the red carpet has become a lot more political in the last couple of years. But it's a little weird because I feel like the award shows themselves really have not caught on yet. Well, joining us now to break it all down is Adam Bivari, BuzzFeed News' senior film reporter. Adam, what's up? Hi, good morning. Good morning. Okay, Adam, were you surprised like Alex that Sandra Oh did not win? Uh, I, I was maybe a little disappointed. I wouldn't say necessarily surprised because that was one of the most competitive categories this year at the Emmys. You had two previous winners, Elizabeth Moss for The Handmaid's Tale and Tatiana Maslany for Orphan Black. Carrie Russell, a lot of people who are huge fans of the Americans feel that she was very much deserving of an Emmy Award for her work on the show that had been over six seasons, and that was her final season on the show. And uh, as similarly, Claire Foy, uh, she, you know, she only had two seasons on The Crown, and now she's done, and she ended up winning. So, I, you know, I, and we've got more seasons of, of uh, Killing Eve to go, so there's probably going to be more chances, hopefully, for Sandra Oh to win. Uh, and uh, I hope to see that day. Oh, well, thank goodness there are more chances for Sandra Oh to win. But who were some of the other notable winners and losers? I'd say the biggest winner, really, was... Streaming, uh, Amazon and Netflix both took home a great deal of uh, trophies this year. Amazon got its first series win with the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Netflix won a great, uh, a large number of the acting awards. Uh, and I, I, you know, once again, I'd say the networks were uh, the big losers. Uh, the only major network win, I believe, was uh, Saturday Night Live winning for variety sketch series. Otherwise, it was sort of a straight route uh, once again and uh, another sign that network television is uh, on its last legs. Yikes. Not good for network TV. So the opening, no. the opening number, <laughs> number of the enemies was kind of this tongue-in-cheek kind of song about diversity and the fact that Hollywood still has a really long way to go. But then, as Sylvia and a couple other people pointed out, the awards were still very white. What do you think that disconnect is there? Um, I think some of that is just the nature of that year's uh, nominees. I think, uh, obviously, uh, the larger voting body for the Emmys was really into The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, so into that show. Um, but, I, you know, th there were small little nuggets of, of interesting progress. progress. I, the thing that was made me the most excited was that RuPaul's Drag Race uh, won its first uh, reality competition Emmy Award, uh, which was very exciting. Um, but, you know, there's also uh, signs that in the, in the years to come, there might be more diversity in the Emmy's future. This is uh, going to be, uh, I think, arguably the most diverse uh, fall TV year that we've ever seen uh, with casts across almost all the new shows, uh, quite diverse, both in leads and in supporting roles. So, uh, I think that hopefully uh, this is just the first of many Emmy Awards years where the nominees are uh, have, a, have a wide degree of diversity. 
Well, Adam, I'm glad to hear that there is some forward momentum at least. But uh, you also tweeted, this Emmy's format of announcing the nominees and then bringing out the presenters who still do banter is not working. Why didn't it work? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think because mostly because people hate banter, but it set up this sort of weird dynamic. We're all used to watching the way it normally goes. You announce the presenters, the presenters come on, they banter, then they announce the nominees, and then they announce the winner. So every time, for me anyway, they announce the nominees, then the presenters come out and banter, and then they just suddenly announce the winner as if it was sort of an afterthought. It, it just threw off the rhythm for me. And and the banter, a lot of it was not very funny. Uh, so you, when it, the banter's not funny, why bother subjecting us to it? It's not... It's, just give us the winners and move on. <laughs> That's so sad. So I kind of get the feeling that you did not think that Michael Shea and Colin Jost did that well. No, I don't think that they were ideal hosts. I mean, it's, the show opened with uh, their Saturday Night Live uh, compatriots, Kenan Thompson and Kate McKinnon. And it certainly seemed like they might have made for better hosts for the entire show. I don't know why they weren't the hosts for the entire show. It was the this year's Emmys was produced by Saturday Night Live producer Lauren Michael. So it, the whole thing had a very SNL bent to it. But uh, yeah, uh, Colin Jost and, and Michael Che were just really low energy. And uh, they're, uh, they're, they had a few good jokes, but mostly what they were saying was, was just fell flat. Oh my gosh, I know when I saw Kate and Keenan walk out on stage when I was watching the clip later on, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be really good. And I'd then, love to see well, Kate yeah. McKinnon host. That you would know. be awesome. Then we know what happened. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. All right, Twitter, who do you think got stumped at the Emmys? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2DM. AM to Justice for Sandra O oh and Issa Rae. I'm not over it. Hashtag still mad about it. Yeah, I would love Issa Rae to win an Emmy and secures the best, obviously. We're huge fans here. We have a whole show about it. <laughs> yep. Well, moving along to some more news, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Ryan Mack. What are you going to do? Sue me, man being sued. Yeah, Elon Musk, who has repeatedly accused British cave diver Vernon Unsworth of being a pedophile, and emailed Ryan saying, and I quote, I fucking hope he sues me, is finally fucking being sued. Ryan joins us now. Hey guys, that was quite the intro. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. This might be a dumb question, but are you surprised that Elon Musk got fucking sued? Um, I don't know. I mean, at this point, no. Um, I'm not surprised about really anything that he subjects himself to these days, and he asked for it, so I guess it finally happened. Well, Elon Musk is just the gift that keeps on giving, not so much in the news. Um, what are the, uh, the charges that Unsworth has brought forth? So it stems back from when Unsworth was a rescuer uh, on the Thai cave rescue with the, uh, the Thai soccer team. He was involved in organizing that, very heavily involved in, in bringing in the team to rescue him. Um, if you remember, Elon got involved and tried to build a submarine for that uh, expedition. It was never used. And Unsworth basically uh, uh, said it didn't work, it would have never worked, and said some kind of not-so-nice things about Elon's involvement, uh, which then caused him to call him a pedo guy on Twitter, um, and then apologize, and then uh, reassert the claims in another tweet, and then, e have, and then he eventually emailed me and called him a pedophile and a child rapist. And so this has gone on for about a couple months. And so these accusations include... 
pedophilia, uh, taking a child bride, uh, child, child rape, just some awful things that he said about, about Unsworth. Has Elon Musk said anything publicly about the lawsuit? He hasn't. This is probably one of the only things that he hasn't commented on, uh, despite having a very kind of active Twitter presence. All right, Ryan, Elon has been smoking pot, doing God knows what else. Is Elon okay? I think so. I think this is kind of part of his his whole shtick, I guess. I mean, people have known him to be quite eccentric. Um, yesterday, beyond this kind of lawsuit, he and SpaceX announced that they're sending someone around the moon. Uh, so they had that announcement yesterday. So he's got a lot on his plate. Uh, seems pretty par for the course for him at this point. Well, we can't see what else he tweets next. Yeah, thank you so much for joining, Ryan. Thanks, guys. Okay, we could end it right here. Cut to commercial. Good show so far, right? But Alex, you know I can't do that. Stephanie, please, please don't do this to me, Stephanie. I am not here for this at all. Please. I am please. a real journalist, and this is the President of the United States we're talking about. It is my duty to talk about the toad thing. Let's look at the tweets. Seth Rosenthal tweeted, I am Toad's publicist. As you can imagine, this is a difficult moment for him, and he will not be giving comment to the press until he's had time to collect his thoughts. And our esteemed colleague Ryan Broderick tweeted, I suppose it would actually be weirder if Trump's penis looked like Toad without his hat. Good one, Ryan. Hey, Alex, do you want to read a tweet? Nope. Stephanie, I am so sick and tired of living in a fellow-centric society. I'm done. Well, sorry, guys. I would just do this for the rest of the show, but I'm just the pretty, pretty face here, and Alex is the boss, so. Well, listen, we have a great show for you. Soledad O'Brien is here, but first we have fire tweets. No more toads, Stephanie. Come on. I used to love Mario Kart. Why you gotta ruin it for me? I really didn't want to have to talk about it, and uh, Softy38, it looks like you are with me. You tweeted, please don't, ladies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry we had to talk about the toad. I'm sorry we had to talk about Mario Kart. From the bottom of my heart, I'm sorry to myself. But there's so much humor out there. Twitter's such a funny place. Well, to more Twitter humor, Mary Houlihan. I actually don't mind when people say I look tired because it just means that I look fly as hell 99% of the time and they are showing concern that the only explanation for me not looking incredible is that something truly ghastly must have happened to me. How do you feel when people say, oh, are you okay? You look a little tired. It usually means that I'm not wearing makeup, which is the patriarchy at its worst. I'm like, you can say, hey, Alex, you look very fresh-faced today. <laughs> you look very youthful today. I think I look great without Don't makeup. Don't call me tired. So. I don't want to hear it. Screw you. Fran Hopfner, I know in my heart I would be a good new Jeopardy host because I also say, fair enough, Every time someone tells me a story about themselves, I don't find interesting. That was my best Alex Trebek. What do you think? Fair enough. Um, I Fair also, enough. I, I'm a fan of just actually saying, oh, that's so interesting when someone says something and I'm like, mm, But they always have the weirdest this. things to talk about. I feel like they set themselves up for failure. Fair enough. Daniel reads tweet, smiles, sees 100,000 RTs. Hey, this person is really funny. 
Reed's tweet smiles, sees zero RTs, two faves. Oof, you poor, sad clown. Stephanie, why are we so beholden to the numbers? I don't know, I never get retweeted though, so this is just my life on this platform. <laughs> Everybody go like Stephanie's tweets. Yeah, I'm really funny. Mark Little. Ladies, if his only interest is hunting that whale that maimed him in an effort to strike back at a god he perceives to be unjust, swipe left. Right. Now that is a old school joke, Mark. You're like, I do not appreciate this Moby Dick reference on my Tinder. Goodbye, <laughs> sir. Move along. You know, whatever. Literature humor. Someone's going to like it. Next one. Do you see my windup is getting bigger and bigger each time because I'm just getting more I'm about and to more get hit. excited? Charla, some of the best acting I've seen is when people pretend they didn't realize they cut in line in front of you, and then when you stare at them, they look at you like, oh, but was this a line? Are you a person? What is Earth? I'm new here. Stephanie, have you ever cut? Have I ever cut a line? Hell yeah. Have you been like, oh, oh, all of a sudden, uh, there's a line? No, I just kind of go like, you just kind of sh you shimmy into the line? Yeah. And Hello, I just kind of ignore. shimmy into the line? I don't know. If, in a really like tough situation, I can get a little selfish. That's my, that's my uh, confession of the day. Fair enough. Do you cut? Oh, I keep on accidentally, I feel like I'm accidentally throwing you shade now every time because of the Alex Trebek tweet. It's okay. I Sincerely, know you don't think I don't I'm very interesting. I didn't mean it's it. fine. Let's just do the tweet of the day now, okay? Okay. All right, I'm about to sing. To the tune of Destiny's Child, say my name. Spell my name, spell my name. It's right there in the email. It's not a hidden detail. The spelling doesn't change. That was an extremely good rendition of Say My Name. Thank you. I took voice lessons when I was a child. I, I can tell. I can <laughs> tell. I love that. I am uh, always here for a good Destiny's Child uh, reference. And I, I really feel for people who have really hard to spell names. I, I got kind of lucky with my name, and people usually don't misspell it, but when they do, it's annoying. Sometimes people think my name is Alice, and I have to be like, Alex. Hmm. There's an X in this name. Sometimes people just throw on like a random Y to the end of my name, but that's okay. Strange. Whatever. All right, y'all. Well, up next, we are going live from the district. Stick around. More fun. <laughs> Welcome back. We're now going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Lisandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. How are you guys? Great. I'm loving your whole look. The side pony Love is iconic. Side pony. Love it. Well, uh, here's a tweet it's from like ABC. Raining, so I've got like wet ponytail. No, I love it. It looks so I'm, good. I'm sorry, too. I just wanted to get into this story so quickly. I should have just let you react to the, the side ponytail love. No, 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 no. Go for it. All right. Well, let's get into it. Here's a tweet from ABC News. The Senate Judiciary Committee is planning to hold a public hearing on Monday and expects to call Judge Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford to testify. Lisa, this story seems to be developing quickly. Why did the committee decide to have a public hearing? Yes. Uh, so this is the big story in Washington, D.C. today, just, just because you actually never really know what's going to happen next in politics, right? And the second that Christine Blasey Ford decided to put her name behind the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Republicans in Congress were under a lot of pressure, right? Because now you have someone, like I said, willing to put her name behind the allegations. Um, and now, now the senators want to judge for themselves whether they find her uh, credible. So this is really setting itself 
up to be um, a test for Republicans on whether they believe women, because I don't know, like I said, anything can happen in politics. A week is still a long ways out. But um, I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot more than Christine Blasey Ford's word against Brett Kavanaugh's. That's so interesting, the fact that it's basically going to be an accuser against uh, the person she's accusing. What are the logistics here of this hearing? Are they going to be sitting right next to each other? Is it going to be one after the other? Do you know? I, we, I, we don't know that yet. I was actually wondering that myself yesterday because surely you would think that um, they, they would have thought through that maybe a woman who's accusing a man of attempted rape several decades back maybe shouldn't be in the same room as him. I'm sure they've thought this through, but we haven't actually heard the logistics. Um, we just know that it's at 10 a.m. on Monday, and, and I'm sure we'll get more information in the coming days. You know, Lisa, gosh, as I've been following this news, I can't help but think about Anita Hill and how just a couple of decades, uh, it feels like we were in a similar position, right? There was a, another Supreme Court nominee uh, who was being confirmed. Um, there was Anita Hill with her own accusations. It was the year of the woman. There were all of these women running for political office. Oh, God, it just feels like, uh, you know, there is a, a ghost of that time with us right now. But, um, you know, are there any parallels uh, now to when that happened? Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's just like what you're saying. History sort of is repeating itself here. Anita Hill herself actually had a piece in The New York Times um, where she's sort of pointing out a lot of the similarities between what happened to her in the 90s versus what's happening now. But besides the fact that she had also accused a Supreme Court nominee of, of similar um, actions, there are big differences, right? This is now several years later, and in theory, the Me Too movement was supposed to be a huge game changer, right? So so despite the fact that there are a lot of parallels between what happened to Anita Hill and and Christine Blasey Ford, remember that it is it is now, right? We, we are supposed to have had this conversation about how you're supposed to believe women, and, and so we'll see. We'll see how much the Me Too movement really changed. Obviously, this is all happening at kind of an interesting time because in just a few months, we have the midterm elections. Is this something that both sides are considering and is that guiding how they are making these decisions in terms of the hearings and everything? Well, there is a little bit of a time crunch because of the midterms, right? So if Republicans don't manage to hold on to the Senate, which there's all, you know, there's all this talk about a blue wave, and it looks more likely like Democrats will take the House, and the House isn't really involved with the Supreme Court nominee at all. But if Democrats also happen to take the Senate and Republicans haven't pushed through a Supreme Court nominee, what happens then, right? And so um, I, I think that Republicans are probably feeling the pressure a little bit. And also the other thing about midterms is that the closer that they get, the more time members are spending outside of town campaigning and not really here in town doing work. Um, so, so they'll be hearing more about constituents and seeing more and more pressure um, as, as Election Day approaches. So that is absolutely a factor. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, Democrats are feeling the pressure. Uh, they're also suing the National Archives for Kavanaugh's records. Why are they doing that? 
Well, so records have sort of been Democrats, um, I mean, for lack of a better word, nerdy argument throughout the entire Brett Kavanaugh proceedings. Um, but that's completely changed now, that it's becoming a conversation, that it has become a conversation about whether or not he attempted to rape a woman in the early 90s. So Democrats are probably still working on, on their prior arguments, but the conversation, as, as you know, has completely shifted away from that and is so focused solely on Christine Blasey Ford. It's so interesting. I can't wait to see how this all unfolds. Oh, I'm bracing myself for that hearing. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's going to be pretty intense. Yeah. Let's move on to some other interesting news. Here's a tweet from Nathan Bernhardt. Marco Rubio breaking Twitter's rules against targeted harassment to go after the Salt Bay guy for serving Maduro is about as 2018 as it gets on here. Lisa, what? 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 Yeah, I know. I know, so 2018, right? Um, so basically Maduro uh, is actually from Venezuela, right? Which is a country that's struggling with a lot. You know, people are, there are starving or are having a bunch of economic issues. And all of a sudden Maduro shows up at this really pricey restaurant and is hanging out with this chef. Um, and Rubio did not like that. So he posted this guy's um, restaurant address and phone number and was encouraging people to call him, which a ton of people found incredibly hypocritical from earlier in the year, which you may remember when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was getting like run out of restaurants. Well, Trump administration officials were getting run out of restaurants. Um, and so, and that's when all the Republicans were like, whoa, you know, we should all be civil, like whatever, right? But now Marco Rubio is encouraging people to call this guy. Um, so a lot of people on, on Twitter immediately jumped on the hypocrisy and questioned whether an official should even be doing this. Right. So, uh, I mean, how inappropriate is it for a, a senator to dox someone? I mean, I think that sort of depends. I <laughs> It sort of depends on your view, but look, it's 2018. I am out, like, I'm done making guesses about, like, what is or isn't appropriate in today's age. Um, 2018. And let, we, we want to be super, super clear. The person who is being doxxed is Salt Bay, like the Salt Bay guy, like this guy. It's very weird. It's very weird. <laughs> Ugh, well, I just I hope about you have a visual Bay. up. I can't see it. <laughs> well, uh, you're not missing anything, I assure you, uh, about Salt Bay, who I just learned about this morning. But thank you so much for joining, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. And up next, Amber sits down with Soledad O'Brien. Stay tuned. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't about believe this you didn't interview. know about Salt Bay. I didn't know. I'm Amber Janison, and I'm joined now by Soledad O'Brien, host of the show Matter of Fact, award-winning journalist and CEO of her own production company, Media Fish. Sorry, Starfish Media. Um, I like Media Fish, though. <laughs> you know, you can that. just rethink it. Right, thinking. right. <laughs> well, we're a show on Twitter, so I wanted to ask you today. But I'm obsessed with Twitter, so it all makes sense. Yeah, and And I, sometimes in the good way and the bad way, right? Twitter's evil, but also amazing. Well, how do you use it? Um, I use Twitter. I think Twitter is actually a pretty good reflection of my life. So mm -hmm. my Twitter has pictures of my kids, stuff that I'm doing. Oh my God, I have false eyelashes on. I look good, so I should post this immediately. Uh, this terrible thing has happened. Where the hell is my package that someone supposed to deliver? Uh, and also commenting on anything that kind of comes across the transom that I'm interested in. So I, 
I sort of use Twitter as just commentary on, I mean, I think it's actually a pretty good reflection of my life, but mm. that sometimes means that it's it's craziness, right? Some of the crazy stuff that Twitter does uh, and some of their policies, I think, make it a really unpleasant experience at times. Well, and I've seen you before call people out on Twitter. Yes. Like I've seen you call out CNN's Chris Eliza on Twitter and often use it in a sort of way for media critiquing. Yeah, I really, uh, you know, I, I have great insight into media in a lot of ways, having spent a lot of time at CNN and, mm. uh, and MSNBC and NBC before that. Mm. So often I feel like I can add some context for people right. who don't understand how things work necessarily if they haven't worked in a newsroom. And so, yeah, I do think um, we've had some interesting strategies by reporters in this news cycle of the last couple of years and sometimes to jump in and say, hey, listen, you know, this is a crazy critique or this person really is not doing this well or, you know, another way to look at the story would have been like this. I, I think I have some good insight on that. Well, as you mentioned, you've worked in, in newsrooms for years. And, you know, right now the media has really been reckoning with incidents of sexual harassment and also just bullying and misogyny, speaking of, you know. Like America, basically. True. I mean, really, I don't think the media is sort of over here and it's really terrible and different than a lot of other industries around, the, you know, in the, in the nation. I just think... In media, people are better known, or uh, people, you know, they they are bold-faced names, right. so the story becomes more interesting. But I, I think a lot of those, those stories are very typical of how organizations historically have run, and it's kind of a reckoning in this country of how people have to think about their HR departments and how um, the role of women and opportunities for women and sexual harassment in a workplace have to be thought through and, and obviously stopped to make businesses run better. I, I, you know, I think Harvey Weinstein sort of led the way on that. But did you think, one, well, was one of the factors in you setting up your own production company also making sure that you were able to tell the stories that you yeah, wanted to tell? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a little bit different than sort of the Me Too movement. Um, for me, I just decided that there were lots of things that I thought I could do. And I have found that no longer working in um, with one media company, then you can, you know, host a show like Matter of Fact, mm. and you can, I can be a correspondent for HBO Real Sports, mm. and I can be in the middle of a bunch of documentaries, none of which that I'm actually in, and pitching projects for other networks, and working on scripted projects, and, you know, playing myself in a movie, and just kind of picking the things that I want to do, mm. um, I think, and, and running up to go see my kids play soccer, because I have a little more control over my schedule, um, that was really my motivation for it, that I could kind of say yes to what I wanted to and say no to the stuff I didn't want to do. That makes sense. Well, recently on Matter of Fact, you interviewed L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti um, about his possible run for president. And I'm just wondering, what are you wanting when it comes to the media reporting on 2020? How are you hoping it's different from 2016? You know, I don't have great hopes that it's going to be much different. I think, um, I think the salaciousness will lead the way. Just mm -hmm. look at Mario, Google Mario Kart this morning. Do a little search on that. That'll send you down in a little tailspin. Uh, and or so don't. I think, right, or don't, right, exactly. I saw that this morning. I'm like, you know what? Skipping. Um, but I do think what ends up happening, right, is everybody runs down this path of crazy and, um, and a lot of thoughtful reporting is often pushed by the wayside. Think of all the stories we're not covering right now. I mean, we used to take a look at, say, the number of children living in poverty in America. There's a report that comes out every single year that analyzes the state of American children. Mm. And, and there's a massive number, more than 20% of the country's children are in poverty. 
you really haven't heard about that. Why? Because we don't have any place to report on that. There's a there's a, a prison strike happening. You might not know about that. I mean, there's so much to to focus on that doesn't get coverage. Why? Because everybody's doing this crazy sw swirling, spiraling, you know, bold-faced name coverage of what's happening politically. So mm -hmm. I don't think there's any reason to assume there's going to be some huge difference because I don't see it. If anything, a lot of the certainly cable has created these um, panels, right? that are just okay. talking heads all the time. We don't even don't even report stories. It's just throw out an issue, weigh in, yes or no, good or bad, love it, hate it, thumbs up, thumbs down. It's one of the reasons when we started doing Matter of Fact, we're now starting our third, the fourth season for the show, third season for me, we really wanted to look at context. So we wanted to ask questions like, well, wait a minute, what is gerrymandering? So, so what exactly does it matter that there's this question on the census mm -hmm. about um, immigration? Um, First Amendment, what does that really mean? When you take the oath of office, what exactly is the president swearing to? Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of people who live in San Diego who, who, go, who, live, who, who have moved to Mexico because housing prices are so much cheaper and then they commute back into the United States. They're Americans. They commute back to the United States because they can't afford housing in the U.S. I think that's an interesting story, and I think it's a political story. So when we started Matter of Fact, we wanted to cover all those things that were not the screaming hysteria of daily politics and presidential tweets and get into those issues that I think are political, but political through through policy and the things mm. we value and believe in. Well, and this is related because I'm thinking of how the cable news uh, have been covering the recent hurricanes, and you started your foundation, Powerful, um, after the after Hurricane Katrina. So, in light of both, you know, Maria from last year and Harvey and the recent Florence, how do you think the kind of government is responding and the media is responding to these kind of major disasters? You know, I mean, unfortunately, when there's so much news, the, the coverage gets bumped out of the front pages. So, right. for example, I think the coverage of Maria and I would say uh, David Bagnod of um, CBS mm. has done, I mean, he's phenomenal. I don't okay, know him welcome. and he's really on my list of people I'd like mm. to bump into because <laughs> I sort of love him from afar. Um, and his reporting is just fantastic. But I think what ends up happening is he really has stayed with that story, but not many other people have. It's expensive to go camp out and cover a hurricane. Um, and I think the government's kind of moved off of the coverage, and so the story has disappeared, and there's so much else happening politically. I mean, really, we've got a lot of political chaos that that, that story has become much more prominent. And. You know, a couple of reporters go out and do aftermath of the hurricane, which is really unfortunate. So, yeah, it's 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 just kind of sad. Um, hopefully, we'll have more opportunities over the next couple of years to come back around to CNN sent 50 teams to cover Hurricane Katrina. 50. Wow. You know, which, by the way, is very expensive. The reason right. people don't do that is it costs a ton of money to send out reporters to go camp out and cover a story very thoroughly. Right. It's much easier to just have a bunch of people around a couch who are all weighing in on their position, on their you know political position, and and yelling at each other. It's it's financially much um, more viable. And I wonder the comparison of how that turned with Puerto Rico uh, last year as well. The numbers. So one thing I'm dying to ask you. Sure, bring it on. Tomorrow, I'm hosting AM to DM for the first time. Oh, fun. And I want to ask you, as a host, what are your tips? Uh, have fun. You know, I think often you go into these things, when I started anchoring, I was so anxious, and you're kind of in your own head. 
and just have fun. You have a guest on. Make them comfortable. Enjoy. You know, ask them questions. Just have fun. Be prepared. Do you have a set question? Like, do you have your go-to, keep it in your pocket, ready to answer? No, but I've gotten better at listening. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key, is to not get so in yourself that you forget, like they've, it, literally, when I started, someone could say, you know, I, I killed my mother last night. I'd be like, okay, well, question three, um, why did you write the book? You know, like, you have to listen and then kind of just get out of your own head and this person is on your couch in your home and you just enjoy them and, and don't be afraid to ask what you want to ask. Well, have brilliant. fun with it. Thank you so much. You bet. Congratulations to you. Thank you. So you can check out Matter of Fact uh, on Sundays uh, on Hearst and more AM to DM is up next. Grace Spellman tweeted, every time I do an unnecessary exclamation point at work, it sets feminism back 30 years. Ludi Leva, Refinery29's work and career writer, joins me now to speak about this very relatable predicament. Ludi, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about this. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you published a piece that was called, Thanks so much for reading this article about using exclamation points at work. Yes. So what made you want to write a whole article about this one topic? Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of stories written about this topic and, you know, the Wall Street Journal and Fast Company, a lot of conversations being had about workplace email etiquette, but I wanted to take a closer look at um, how it's specifically affecting women. Um, I have a, a lot of freedom at my job to write about, you know, what real women are talking about. I get to overhear conversations on the subway, look on Twitter, see what people really are, are having trouble with in the workplace. And so this is something that I saw talked about over and over again, and it's something that I've experienced a lot in my own life as well. Um, right now, a little bit less so, but when I was a freelancer, it was definitely a huge issue. There would be times where, you know, I would spend way too much time email, or editing an email um, to a prospective client or something like that. And it was just, you know, it was something that was on my mind for a long time. You opened up your piece by talking about one woman in particular who, you know, used a lot of exclamation points and emails, as I feel like a lot of women do, and then one day specifically tried not to use exclamation points and was told by her boss she came off as snarky. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, her story was definitely really interesting. Um, she shared with me that she had struggled a lot with being overly accommodating, overly kind, overly, you know, a little bit passive via email. And she actually got reprimanded by one of her bosses for something totally unrelated. And in her, in her response to that, she wrote an email and she tried to write it more assertively with fewer exclamation marks, just a little bit more, you know, a little bit more sure of herself. And yeah, her boss came back to her and said, you know, that was very snarky, sarcastic, and full of attitude. And she was obviously very upset. She did not think that she was being full of attitude or rude or anything along those lines. So um, I was pretty shocked to hear that story. What I didn't get to mention, though, is that she actually recommended her boss to go to unconscious bias testing, or sorry, training, and she went and she ended up getting a raise. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you also spoke to a psychotherapist who talked about kind of the interesting mental gymnastics behind this. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so the psychotherapist I spoke with said that a lot of this has to do with kind of what a lot of women have, which is an internal battle to make our voices heard or to you know, really struggle with how we're presenting ourselves, how we're being perceived out in the world. And she really thought that it starts 
more internally, like really taking a look at how, you know, how we feel about what we have to say, um, really reminding ourselves that we are able to say whatever we feel and we're able to be direct. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're being bitchy or being um, unpleasant. Um, so it was her opinion that it really starts there, like more internally and taking a look at, at um, just how we move through the world and how we use our voices. I was definitely inspired when I read your uh, story about thinking about my own emails and what I could do to not add a bunch of random exclamation points if it's not what I'm feeling. Do you have any advice for women who might be listening to this conversation who want to be more assertive or realize, hey, that kind of sounds like me, what could I do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a complicated issue because I certainly don't want to say that women should or should not be using exclamation marks. I think it really is whatever feels right for you. Um, but I do think it starts with um, being more sure of ourselves and thinking about, you know, what you know, what would a man write? What would, you know, what would happen if I just was direct and was honest about what I'm saying? And I think it's a lot of unlearning, a lot of unpacking the way we've been socialized from a very young age to be accommodating, to be, you know, reading the room and making sure everyone is feeling comfortable. And, you know, I think it really starts there. Um, just taking a look at, at what we're really feeling and being confident to use our voice and to be direct if necessary and knowing that that doesn't have to be a bad thing. I think also just read your boss's emails and if your boss doesn't use a lot of exclamation points, whether they are a man or a woman, try to emulate that style, that style if that is someone you respect as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We want to hear from you. How many exclamation points are too many in a work email? Let us know using the hashtag ANCDM with whatever punctuation you want. You can even do a frowny face. We won't judge. Up next, Ben Smith is sitting down with the authors Tom Wright and Bradley Hope. I'm Ben Smith, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with Tom Wright and Bradley Hope, award-winning journalists and the authors of the new book, Billion Dollar Whale, which, which comes at the end of the summer of scam. I think, you know, we've been covering incredible scams all summer, and Billion Dollar Whale is about the 1MDB scandal, maybe the biggest heist in history by some measures, and it's told through the lens of the guy at the heart of it, a guy named Joe Lowe. And I guess I just wonder if you could start out by telling us, you know, who is this guy? Yeah, so Joe Lowe is this um, Malaysian, you know, young Malaysian guy that, that seemed to sort of come out of nowhere and become this huge deal maker. And, um, you know, he was, he was doing deals with major Hollywood studios and, and um, you know, he was, he was sort of this, um, just like a, an all-around um, deal maker type character. So. He helped produce The Wolf of Wall Street. And... <clears throat> And what? And I guess you know one of the. I, I was thinking he's, he was probably at some point the world's richest millennial, or at least was was living well, the life was, of that. Well, he was only 27 when he persuaded the the Malaysian prime minister <clears throat> at the time to set up a sovereign wealth fund and let him run it from behind the scenes. So it would be as if uh, Kalpas was run by a 27 year old with no experience. He was a Wharton grad, hadn't really worked and or done a proper job, and ran this fund, got Goldman. And how, so how did he? I mean, he must have talked a really good game. Like well, how, how do you, you? Just I mean, you know, as a matter of advice, how do you persuade the prime minister of Malaysia to give you billions jo of dollars to manage? So Jolo's great genius was to put himself between powerful people. When he it was almost like any situation from from his youth until now, he would find out who could make him wealthy, and and what he could do for them. So when he was at Wharton, he got to know all of the the Middle Eastern rich kids. And then he, when he went back to Malaysia, where he was from, he brought in Middle Eastern money into Malaysia. And so they then trusted him. 
And he then showed them like how these huge sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East that run, by the way, they run more money than, than hedge funds and uh, private equity put together, um, that he, they should do a fund in Malaysia like that. And then the prime minister allowed him to run it. Um, and the payback was that it was a slush fund for the prime minister. But little did the prime minister know, Jolo took out 4.5, maybe 5, maybe $6 billion, used it to build a, a Hollywood empire and, and buy, you know, and so, and so he, he's partying with Leonardo DiCaprio, with Britney Spears, with top figures from Goldman Sachs. How do they explain to themselves who this guy is? I mean, can you, can anyone, I mean, is, is it just that as long as the money's good, nobody asks questions in Hollywood and Wall Street? I think that, yeah, I think nobody actually knew what was really going on. I mean, they just saw this mysterious Malaysian uh, ultra wealthy guy, and he was just willing to spend so much money. Nobody was asking a lot of questions. He was just picking up the bill, and a lot of the celebrities that came were actually being paid, just being paid directly to, to attend these parties. And that's just the kind of secret underworld of Hollywood, that that's the way, the way it works. Yeah, in, in 2009, when he, he took his first haul from this fund, and the way he did that, by the way, was to, to, to strike deals with other sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East, and then they, they just divvied up the cash. Um, and Goldman missed a ton of red flags. But when he got hold of that cash, what he wanted to do was become, first of all, he wanted to party with Paris Hilton, and he, he gave her 250000 yeah, He had kind of like slightly out-of-date taste, right? It was Paris Hilton and Britney Spears? Or well, that it was 2000, it, 2009, is that out-of-date? I, I think don't know. still a little still bit, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. a little bit of a discount. Well, he, he, he's, one of his favorite films while he was at Wharton was that, that horror film she did, that terrible... House of Wax. House of Wax. No, I missed that one. Yeah, well, you know, lucky you. But <laughs> yeah, so she, she, uh, she was one of his fixations, and so when he turned up in... in, in in Hollywood, he's like, I've got this money. He found the agents and he started to pay them to turn up and they would uh, gave her, like I said, $250,000 on her birthday in gambling chips. Yeah, Cartier Britney watch. Spears come out of a cake at some point. Yeah. One thing we were just talking about before, but was it, you know, I think, what, was he also playing on American ignorance of Southeast Asia? He presented himself, so he's, I guess, a, a Chinese, an ethnic Chinese guy from Malaysia, but portrayed himself as a Malaysian prince and people just kind of bought that? Yeah, you know, we were saying earlier, like, you know, he could put himself between people and give them what they wanted, right? So he, he gave Leonardo DiCaprio what he wanted, which is he was, he was trying to make uh, The Wolf of Wall Street and Warner Brothers uh, uh, didn't want to make it. They thought he wouldn't make his money back because it was going to be R-rated. And Jolo comes along and says, I've got $400 million in financing for, for you. And people didn't really, it's a kind of Orientalism. People are like, well, maybe he's an arms dealer. Maybe he's a, a, an heir to a fortune out in the East, the Far East. Nobody, yeah. nobody knew what he, who he was or really cared because it was money that counted. And but there was, I mean, what's uh, one of the great details in the book is there was there was one guy in the world of the Wolf of Wall Street who did feel like something was going wrong, right? Yeah. I think actually there's a few people like that. The, actually, the, one of the earliest stories about Joe Lowe was in the New York Post, and it was about this high-flying guy that has, was like you know this whale that had landed at the New York nightclubs, and so there was a comment in there like nobody spends their own money like this. And uh, actually, the same thing for Jordan Belfort, who you know the the star of of the Wolf. Wall the, 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 it was based on the, the convicted Wolf. felon yeah. on who the it convicted was based, felon yeah. on who it's based. He also had the, that inkling that nobody spends their own money like this, you know. And and he said it was a scam. And he sort of recognized a kindred spirit. But, maybe, he, but at the same time, he was kind of scamming the scammers because you know it's not his problem, you know. So he was just he, I mean, they paid him a lot of money to make a film based on his book. I mean, it's got to be the most meta moment in the history of cinema, right? That they made the Wolf of Wall Street with money stolen. From a from a, a the Malaysian people, yeah, and the Jordan Belfort smelled smelled the scam when he, you know when they were making. And there have been you know huge consequences <clears throat> in Malaysia, which I want to get to in a minute. To, to these are the revelations from your book from other reporters like our mutual friend Claire Rucastle. But um, the, the there was also 
you know, you see, I've, you see char both characters and patterns popping up in this investigation that cross into the sort of the world of Paul Manafort, right? I mean, I think there's, and, and I wonder, you know, if, if you watch these things unfold in Washington and Manafort, the way Manafort was moving money, money around from Ukraine in particular, like, are these all the same people? Is this all the same system? I mean, it's the, definitely the same system for laundering money you know there's only there's only one system for laundering money it's this constellation of offshore centers these kind of tried and true practices um, it's kind of mysterious who are these money launderers that you can go to that help you do it I mean there are some that have emerged in this book um, and I think that definitely those patterns continue and they and they don't seem to go away it's kind of like a whack-a-mole thing it's kind of also interesting that they, people get kind of exposed, like Joe Lowe, for example. He originally had these companies in the Seychelles, which were called bearer share companies. So the only way you could know who the owner was is if you had the actual piece of paper. Those are like the great money laundering tool. But in the midst of while he owned one of those, they converted it to just a normal system. And so his name got thrust into the directory. And it kind of accidentally exposed him and set him up for the, all the revelations, because if it was still one of those places, you know. And I think a lot of these guys rely on those those systems. But ba banks in particular, which are supposed to, by law, the U.S. law, have a certain amount of accountability, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, places like that, are there any consequences for them for, for being intermediaries and making these well, huge profits? Well, I mean, the Department of Justice is investigating Goldman Sachs' role in this. I mean, Goldman Sachs, as I said, helped raise uh, $6.5 billion for the fund, or half of which was stolen. Um, and what did Goldman know? Well, for sure they missed red flags. This compliance departments are supposed to stop that kind of thing happening. No, what, this wasn't just red flags, right? They were. They were like way well, giant. Well, we'll start with banners. red flags. We'll start with red flags. We can move on to maybe you know, yeah. that, what, what else might have happened. But I mean, at one point, the, the fund asked for $3 billion that they'd raised in bonds on international markets to go into a Swiss bank account that had, you know, tiny amount of, 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 of assets. A tiny bank. A tiny bank. I mean, and why was a sovereign wealth fund using a, a Swiss bank? You use Swiss banks to hide money, right? So uh, the lawyer on the deal, a Linklater's lawyer, which was Goldman's lawyer on the deal, said, look, this smells, but it went through anyway because Goldman was making so much money because these were private deals and they, were, they made 600 million and it was one of the biggest paydays of the, of the year for Goldman. Everyone, everyone who was involved with it got promoted. Lloyd Blankfein, who's retiring in a, in a few days, uh, you know, was, was behind the deal. Gary Cohen was a huge supporter of it. And the context of it was that the financial crisis had happened here and emerging markets uh, were, were a place to make money for, these, for, the, for those banks. Now, the, um, just, just a last question. Books, often a book like this is sort of centered on a jailhouse interview or a confession or the guy's own memoir. Not only do you not have an interview, a jailhouse interview, Joe Lowe is at large, right? I mean, do you think he I mean, might be might maybe watching this, this very program and has been writing letters to bookstores, I think, to try to get them to... Well, his lawyers have, yeah. His lawyers have to, to withdraw your book. Has his campaign against you had any impact? I mean, I would say it's had some limited impact. Some of the bookstores have kind of, they got freaked out and they, they took it off their website. But in general, it's had that, this, this thing called the Streisand effect, which is lots of people who don't even buy books very often, they heard that there was a book that somebody was trying to ban and now they went and bought it. Always I think it's got to get yourself on the banned book list. Yeah, exactly. Well, so he may, I mean, if he's watching right now, what, what, what would you say to Mr. Lowe? We, we still yeah. request an interview, you know. Yeah. And Joe Lowe, uh, come and talk to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we've been asking for, for three years and, yeah, didn't work out for us so but far. But he, seems, he see, does seem to be cl paying close attention to your book. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. We, we, we appreciate it. We'd love to dance. 
We're done, it's Tuesday, we love to dance. You know, I don't really know what I'm doing there. It's very exciting because now that I'm no longer in the control room, I really, I get to live my best life out here. I know, dance it's fun to I dance want. to the music. Be free, you know? I know, thank you for dancing with me. I love it, I love to dance. You're welcome, you're welcome. Um, yeah, so we had a really interesting conversation, I thought, about exclamation points in the workplace and just the fact that women aren't taken as seriously because we feel like we have to, uh, I guess, tone down everything that we say. Rachel, hey girl, Field tweeted, to us only one exclamation point per email people think I'm stern but whatever I've been trying to do that rule as well if I'm trying to do like maybe only one or two exclamation points in my work emails yeah it's so wild that uh, we even have to kind of censor ourselves in our emails and then we go through this self-doubt of like now I have to walk back my self-censorship over emails you know the patriarchy is just everywhere but it's so true sometimes when I say something I read what I say and if I didn't put any uh, punctuation on it, I feel like, oh my God, are they going to take it? Even even in Slack, not even just work emails. Sometimes, you know, I work in breaking news, so we're just kind of like slacking back and forth and I'll read something and I'll be like, oh my God, did I come off kind of bitchy there? But it's just because I'm not putting exclamation points. It's silly. God forbid we as women come off as too bossy in the workplace. Well, on that note, we asked for your thoughts on the Emmys. Softy38 says, I also did not like the new for Emmys format with the Emmys. Plus, I felt that it heightened the tension for the nominees in the already tense room and not in a good way. It also interrupted the flow. Yeah, uh, it sounds super awkward. Yeah, I, I don't really know why they decided to do that. I feel like they're not probably going to do that next time. I don't know. I guess they were trying something new. It didn't work out. Always next year. Yeah, Sabrina says, where was the diversity last night? Atlanta deserved an Emmy at least. Issa Rae, Sandra O, oh, but no, they had to give them to Mrs. Maisel. They shouldn't brag about diversity when they're not able to reward more than three different shows. Yeah, it seems like the voters a lot of times seem to love things that maybe don't translate to the population at large. I mean, I know a ton of people love Mrs. Maisel, don't get me wrong, but it seems to me like more people like Insecure and especially Issa Rae's performance, but... Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's just so disingenuous to say that something's going to be the most diverse ever, and then you actually, there is no diversity in substance, right? It's just like a big advertisement or, uh, you know, right now we're in a moment where diversity, it's attractive. You know, we're excited to see different kinds of representation and intersectionality in our award shows. Um, but, you know, then it just all seems to be lip service. So it kind of reminds me of how corporations, it's cool now to be, you know, body positive and inclusive, but it seems very cheap when it's kind of all to sell things or to, you know, get good press. You know, we actually, it's something we care about. It's not just something that's on the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Cini Martinez had this reaction to Soledad O'Brien's interview. Soledad should do all the news. And I gotta say, I concur completely. Soledad was so great. Amber's interview was lovely. I really, I tweeted this, but I really appreciated her advice. As someone who has only been hosting for about a year now, uh, it's true, you really need to listen to your interview when you're speaking to them because I definitely fell into the trap of being so focused on your questions and my nerves that you kind of don't listen to what you're saying. And once I was able to take a step back and relax. So it was always, it's really cool to hear, you know, as a younger woman in this industry, to hear from someone who's been in the industry longer. It's really nice. Yeah, I loved hearing so dad talk about how when she started earlier on she was anxious and nervous too it's just always so nice to hear that even people who are so successful and so good and have really mastered whatever their art or career is um, that they had to start out uh, with less experience as well 
We're all just trying here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much to our guests, Sold Out O'Brien, Tom Wright, Bradley Hope, Adam Buberry, Ryan Mack, Lysandra Villa, Ben Smith, Amber Jamison, and Ludi Leva. Tomorrow, Hayes Brown and Amber Jamison will be co-hosting, so be sure to watch at 10 a.m. And Alex, thank you thank so you. much for spending the past two days with me. We made it. We it made it. Amazing. Thank Woo. you for dancing with me. Thank you for singing so much with fun. me. We hope you guys enjoyed it too. We Give Alex a big round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you can avoid Mario Kart. Everyone's, everyone's clapping for you. It's so great. <laughs>